Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, my guest is Jacob Begun. He's a professor at uh, University of Queensland School of Medicine in Australia. Uh, he doesn't sound like he's from there, so he must have moved there at some point. Um, we'll get into that. And he's uh, studying IBD, irritable bowel disorder, and um, various topics around uh, immunity, inflammation, etc. So, Jacob, thanks for coming. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Where, where did you start out? How did you end up in Australia, by the way? Oh, well, that will be uh, our first story. So um, I, uh, as you can tell from my accent, I am American. Uh, although I was born in Norway, uh, we moved back to America with my parents uh, when I was a young uh, kid at four years old. When I was 13, my parents decided that it was time to see the world a bit. And we took off from uh, Newport, Rhode Island, um, and actually by sailboat, uh, started sailing around what was supposed to be a uh, trip around the world. We ended up uh, making it about halfway to Australia when they decided to settle down, put their two children back into high school at the time, and they've been here ever since. So after I finished high school in Australia, I came back to America for university and um, medical school and a PhD and my uh, postdoctoral training and and medical training. And then I came back to Australia six years ago uh, to Brisbane. That's um. So you're studying predominantly IBD or you're studying just inflammation or what's, what's your research mm-hmm. background? Yeah. So uh, I am a MD-PhD and my medical training uh, was in gastroenterology. So I'm a practicing gastroenterologist. Uh, I spend about uh, half my time uh, treating patients uh, at the hospital here, the Mater Hospital. Um, and there I run the inflammatory bowel disease clinic. Although I am uh, generally interested in inflammation in the gut and a variety of inflammatory disorders. And the other half of my time, I run a small uh, research laboratory at the University of Queensland. And our lab is really focused on understanding the interplay between the gut microbiome and our immune system and how the bacteria in our gut can influence inflammation in our body. Inflammatory bowel disease is a, a very common, well, I shouldn't say common, but a very um, high incidence disease in Australia. Australia has actually one of the highest rates in the world of inflammatory bowel disease, things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which people may have heard of. Uh, and it's been a, a real mystery why the diseases are increasing in incidence in, uh, around the world. And it was originally a disease just of uh, the developed world or Western countries and really wasn't seen in the developing world. But nowadays where there's been a industrialization of the developing world, we find more and more uh, increasing rates of inflammatory bowel disease, which is quite interesting. Well, um, when you eat food, who eats first? Is that a fair question? <laughs> is it, is I think it, it is a fair question. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the enzymes in your mouth and all that, I know they start to degrade the food, but there's bacteria there already, and then the stomach and the, the intestines. I mean, it's, it's weird. Like, has, have you looked at that interplay of you know, our substances passed back and forth and what happens? Oh, I think it's a great question. So as you did um, to in your question, there is a gradient of bacteria within our digestive tract, which we think of as sort of mouth to anus. Uh, there is a rich ecosystem of microbes in the mouth, and certainly their primary energy source is the food that we put into our mouths. 
Um, and then as you go down into the stomach, the concentration of bacteria decreases markedly. The stomach is a very hostile place for bacteria with very um, low pH, so high acid levels. And then as you get into the small bowel, you start seeing that the bacterial concentration increases the more, uh, the further down you go in the uh, small intestine. And then when you get to the colon, that's really when the, the major load of bacteria are encountered. Um, the average person has uh, several kilos or, or almost 10 pounds worth of bacteria uh, in their GI tract. And your point about uh, the nutrients. So yes, uh, bacteria really rely mainly on the nutrients that we're putting in your mouth, although they also can live off of the mucus that all of the cells lining our gastrointestinal tract uh, produce. So in terms of what eats first, certainly in the mouth, the bacteria are eating first. But when it comes down uh, to the lower digestive system, a lot of the nutrients have been absorbed in the upper uh, small bowel. And then what's left over that goes down to the lower bowel, the undigestible, if you will, food, um, that's what the bacteria really thrive on. Okay, so you're studying the immunity and how uh, the gut bacteria contribute to that. In general, do you believe that our immunity is a combined, is, is it informed by both our gut bacteria and our somatic cells or is it really our somatic cells that create the immunity and the bacteria just have to be monitored for their role and how they modulate it? Like, how do you think our immunity arises? Mm -hmm. um, well, our immunity arises very early in life, and there's a lot of education that goes on in the very early years. This is why there's been a lot of research in mode of delivery, the role of breastfeeding, the role of formula, what you're exposed to early in life in terms of potential allergens. So a lot of immunity is, um, is formed early in life. And what happens early on, if things go smoothly, is that there is something called tolerance that develops in the gut, which is to say that the immune system is aware of the bacterial presence. There's constantly signaling in the immune system, yet it tolerates this presence. So there's not a huge immune response in your gut. You don't have a lot of gut inflammation in general just a tiny bit, which is exactly the amount that you need. However, of course, when we get an infection, which for example, if you had a pathogenic bacteria like salmonella that you um, uh, encountered because you ate uh, some bad meat or something like that, then the immune system has a vigorous response to clear this pathogen out of the gut, which involves the influx of immune cells, the production of um, pro-inflammatory uh, signaling molecules, um, and a lot of damage to the gut, which gives people symptoms, of course, diarrhea, bleeding in the gut, etc., to clear this pathogen out. But these pathogenic exposures are relatively rare. And on the most part, the gut just the um, immune system tolerates those bacteria that are in the gut. So how does that happen? It's a real um, interesting. And also, uh, why does it break down in some people? And so we've come to appreciate that there is a lot of crosstalk between the immune system and the gut microbiome, which I'll focus on bacteria. But of course, there are also fungi and viruses there as well. Mm. And what we've appreciated is that the microbiome is producing um, a lot of metabolites and signaling molecules. These are secreted by uh, the cells in the microbiome. They diffuse through the gut and then they interact with the um, immune system, the somatic cells of our body, if you will. And the, the immune cells have uh, evolved to respond to these signals, either uh, ramping up inflammation in the case of pathogens when they uh, recognize certain pathogenic signals or in general, uh, calm down and, and tolerate these microbes living in our gut. So. Uh when irritable bowel arises, does, uh, I mean, have, have people been sampled? I mean, well, you don't know, and you certainly don't wish it upon someone, you don't want to cause it, but um, is there a set of conditions that scientists have figured out where someone's very likely to get IBD within a certain number of years? And if so, can you sample those people's uh, microbiomes, you know, longitudinally before mm. and through it to see what happens? Mm. 
It's a great question. Um, so uh, I'll just distinguish between two different conditions because it's important probably to distinguish and also um, recognize what goes on in both of them. So there's a condition on, um, and the names are very similar, which makes it confusing. And there's a condition called IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. And this is a very common condition uh, in uh, industrialized countries that might affect 30% of the population characterized by irregular bowel habits, uh, pain, uh, and um, this is uh, also thought to be linked to the microbiome, but also linked to diet. And uh, there might be some small degree of inflammation contributing to that particular syndrome. It certainly uh, in some patients responds to antibiotic therapy, for example. Whereas inflammation, inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, which is mainly Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is a, a different end of the spectrum where there is a significant amount of inflammation that develops. There's pathologic lesions. These patients are often quite sick and sometimes require surgery or very potent medication to control these inflammatory responses. So with respect to the, the role of the microbiome in the development of disease, we know from some epidemiological studies that there are certain risks risk factors that are associated with the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. These things include uh, childhood exposure to antibiotics, which kind of points a little bit towards the microbiome. There is um, some evidence about uh, C-section versus vaginal delivery. Vaginal delivery might be protective. In addition, breastfeeding might also be protective in large cohort studies, although epidemiology is always um, susceptible to bias, et cetera. But there are a few clues there that microbiome might be important. There are, um, as you mentioned, because the incidence of this disease is only 30 per 100,000, it's a little uh, unfeasible to go out and check, you know, 100,000 people and look at them every year and see for those 30 who develop disease. But there have been a few notable um, studies that have happened recently. Uh, one study is um, a study from Canada where they looked at high-risk individuals. So these are people who have a first-degree relative with inflammatory bowel disease or multiple second-degree relatives. And in this patient population, the rate of IBD is much higher. And they've looked at these patients longitudinally to see if there are changes in the microbiome that precede their diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. And then there's another big data set, which is a um, from the US military actually, where they've collected serum samples from um, army personnel uh, going over 20 uh, or actually 30 years. Uh, and they've looked at changes in the blood tests over these years, and they can find evidence that there are immune responses in these blood tests well before patients develop the disease. And what the trends seem to point to is that something happens in the gut where the normal diversity that's there, where we have generally greater than 350 species of bacteria, uh, main species of bacteria in the gut, this uh, diversity contracts and we see a loss of diversity. And this seems to be um, the strongest signal that we see associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, the actual individual bacterial species that are going up and down in prevalence, um, that is a little bit harder to uh, harmonize across all of the various studies that have been uh, done. There does seem to be some general trends in terms of large family or organisms that tend to go up and tend to go down. Uh, but overall, I think the message that comes out is that seems to be less diversity and in associated with that lower diversity is a um, dysregulation of the immune system where it becomes more active and more inflammation in the gut. So if I think of um, the bacteria in the gut, you know, the gut is a job center for bacteria. You know, a lot of people talk about diversity. Oh, there's, there's more diversity in healthy people. There's less, <laughs> and, But, but yes. that doesn't really tell me much, you know. No. Great. There's less diversity, but. If I think about it instead as a job center, maybe that means certain jobs are unfulfilled. Therefore, certain compounds that we need to be healthy are not being made by the bacteria. And perhaps that's the reason for the pathology. What's your thought? That is a, a fantastic segue into what we're doing in the lab. So thanks very much for that. Um, so I agree completely. So the technological advances that we have seen uh, recently that have allowed us to get the level of detail understanding that we have of the gut bacterial composition has really been based on this next generation sequencing of DNA, which has revolutionized many aspects of biology in the last uh, 
couple of decades. And so this allows us to um, sequence the DNA in stool. And from those sequences, we can then put together a map of, uh, oh, well, this particular species of E. coli is represented at 0.1%, and this particular species of Streptococcus is represented at uh, 2%, uh, and that's how we get these maps of the microbiome. So that type of mapping tells you which bacterial species are there, and that's fabulous. We know so much detail about that, which is great, but it doesn't tell you what those bacteria are doing at a functional level. It doesn't tell you about these chemicals that they're producing. Even if the genes for producing these molecules are there, they may be turned on or not, and we don't really have the level of detailed understanding of that. We are starting to get that with uh, techniques like metatranscriptomics, which is looking at the RNA expression levels of bacteria, and also metabolomics, which is looking at the um, uh, chemicals that these bacteria are producing and that the body's producing as well. So in my lab, what we're trying to do is understand the function of individual bacteria within the gut. I think that the field as a whole has been focused on communities, which is great, but to really understand how those individual members of the community might be interacting or might be influencing the host, we feel that we really have to look at them individually. So what we do in my lab is um, take uh, samples, usually stool samples, and under um, our uh, anaerobic culturing facilities, we're able to grow out uh, various bacteria in individual cultures that exist in that sample. And then once we have the single bacterial species, we can look to see what they produce under various uh, situations in terms of what nutrients we give them, what growth conditions there are, and we can test the chemicals that they're producing in assays that we have in the lab. Assays are biological tests. So we can see if the bacteria are producing chemicals that tend to suppress inflammation, in our test tubes in the lab or tend to promote inflammation. We can also check the whole stool sample as well to see if that overall community on the whole integrated tends to promote inflammation or not. But this greater understanding of the individual bacteria and what they're producing is now going to inform all of these data sets we have that show, oh, well, look, these genes are there. And now in the lab, we're able to say, well, if those genes are there and they're turned on, then we have this sort of function. And functional annotation of these genes is what's really been um, lagging behind the uh, genomic revolution. And so we're hoping to contribute in that way and therefore inform everyone else's studies as well about what function these genes might have that they're finding. Well, I've heard, for instance, you know, I don't know, but, you know, like I take uh, thyroid hormone and supposedly uh, like T3 to T4 is converted in the gut. It's always in the gut, you know, and I've heard serotonin, the preponderance of it's made in the gut and B vitamins are made in the gut. So if we understand what's going on and what the bacteria produce, you know, from a metabolomic standpoint, maybe then we could use blood markers as a good proxy to see the condition of the gut and what's going on there, what jobs are either being fulfilled or not fulfilled. If you look at, you know, let's say the gut bacteria make certain B vitamins and IBD always seems to be then associated with, you know, a, a, a lack of certain B vitamins, maybe the two correlate together and you can gain some understanding that way. Yeah, and, and certainly it's a lot more attractive to look at blood tests and stool tests to look at uh, these sorts of metabolites. And uh, people are looking at blood. They're also looking at urine, which has the um, advantage of sort of doing a bit of filtering out of uh, normal blood proteins, et cetera, and allowing the metabolites to be concentrated in the urine. So that's another attractive place uh, to look. And certainly there are many examples of um, nutrients uh, that are bioconverted in by gut bacteria. I think one of the most classic examples is probably vitamin K, which is activated in the gut. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of vitamin deficiencies we see associated with disease. Vitamin D is another one that we commonly see in inflammatory conditions, IBD and also other immune mediated uh, disorders. And I think that that's um, a really nice idea about thinking about these deficiencies that we find 
and not just looking at, oh, um, that must mean that the intake of them is too low, but also think about the bioconversion that's happening in the gut of precursors to the um, mature uh, nutrients that our body needs and potentially supplementing that. I will say that the um, research field for probiotic supplementation has been a, a fairly disappointing one in terms of uh, being able to see uh, supplementation of particular bacteria have beneficial effects in people. And some of that might just be the numbers game when we're giving someone even billions of organisms as a probiotic, that's still in the sea of 100 trillion organisms. So in many respects, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of absolute numbers. And then even if you add those bacteria to the system, whether or not they'll be able to set up shop, as it were, to find their niche, to grow into their niche and, and colonize the gut, that seems to be um, a difficult task to do when there's already an established gut microbiota there. Yeah, they have to survive the stomach acid. They have to, uh, you know, get to their proper resting place. And there has to be enough and of them. And the right. other bacteria that might be there already. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, I will say, Dick, the one, the one exception to that rule, in, especially in inflammatory bowel diseases, um, I guess not a probiotic technique, but a megabiotic technique, which is a um, technology called fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMT. Uh, and this has gained a lot of... Um, success stories, it's racked up. The, the major uh, indication for fecal microbiota transplantation is recurrent C. difficile colitis, which is an uh, infection of the gut that causes quite a, a bad uh, set of symptoms. And FMT seems to be the most effective therapy for that, particularly for people who failed a course of antibiotics. But there's also been now four randomized controlled trials in inflammatory bowel disease that's showing uh, FMT can be very effective, as effective as some of our most potent medications, um, biologic medications like uh, anti-TNFs, et cetera, um, at inducing remission in inflammatory bowel disease. So uh, I think we have at least a proof of principle that certainly uh, changing the bacterial composition can affect uh, disease. Well, why do you think FMT works? Is it because that you will get trillions of the right bacteria and therefore it's enough? Or, you know, one thing that occurred to me is um, when we take probiotics, there's likely I don't know, there's probably no phage associated with them. But if you do a, a fecal transplant, there's going to be trillions and quadrillions of phage associated with those bacteria. So maybe it's the phage that either caused the success or lack of success of a bacteria taking hold and not the numbers of bacteria themselves. That's a very astute point. So uh, yes, you do put a lot more uh, bacteria in, you uh, do an FMT. There's also many more species of bacteria that you put in. So if you think that oh, well, maybe there's a deficiency of a few species, you might have better luck with an FMT than you would with probiotics. But this comment about phage is very um, uh, interesting one. So yes, you're right. There are many more phage. The phage outnumber the bacteria in uh, the human microbiome. And there's actually been um, some experiments uh, done by uh, Stefan Schreiber's group in Germany where they uh, filtered the stool um, from an FMT through a, a fine filter that would filter out all of the bacteria. And they put that filtrate in uh, instead of putting in the full FMT. And they had... Uh, similar efficacy just with this filtrate. And Stefan um, postulated what might be in there. And certainly phage is one of the things that might be in there. I will also say from my own perspective, since I study this in my lab, that all the metabolites from the bacteria are also in that filtrate. So that might also be having an effect as well. But you're absolutely right. We have not studied phage very much at all. It's a little technically challenging, uh, but there's certainly a lot of interest in it. And it's something that people have been studying in general for 30 or 40 years now, bacteriophage and the roles that they can play. Yeah, it makes sense what you're saying about the metabolites and about, you know, possibly about phage, because again, if I, again, this is my analogy, but if it is a job center, the fact that there is redundancy means that multiple species of bacteria can fulfill at least some of the jobs. So maybe it's not as important as you have, you know, bacteria X as you have the metabolites and you have some bacteria that can do that job versus not. 
I think that's right. And um, although with respect to phage, we often focus on the specificity of phage to deplete certain bacteria. So for example, one phage would only be specific for one class of E. coli, and that's the class of E. coli that they infect and kill off. But phage can also um, transfer genes between uh, different bacteria and horizontal transmission of genes. And they can also uh, be responsible for turning on and off uh, different genes and different metabolites for that matter. Right. <laughs> it so gets complicated really quickly. It does, yeah. So what, what are some of the big questions that you're trying to answer and how are you doing it? Mm -hmm. So um, I described briefly the techniques, uh, one of the techniques that we're using in our lab. So uh, it rests as a whole on uh, being able to culture these individual bacteria and being able to manipulate their environment so that you can study which environmental cues can cause them to secrete these bioactives. Um, then we have a variety of animal models where we try to study how these bioactives exert their effects, so which immune pathways are these bioactives targeting, so we can really understand both on the host side and on the bacterial side how the metabolites are produced and what they're interacting with uh, that causes their effect. Um, some of these we go on to characterize structurally, so we've identified the structure of these metabolites. Some of them we've synthesized chemically so that we can understand the actual um, bits of the, of the chemistry that are important for its biological activity. And where I see this going forward, I mean, I work in uh, the clinic, uh, as I mentioned, two and a half days a week. And patients are often asking me about, uh, oh, I don't want to take this immunosuppressant because um, I'd rather, much rather treat the underlying condition, which is this imbalance between the immune system and the gut. And there's a real uh, demand for these sorts of therapies, therapies that are derived from bacteria that can have the effects that we want. And also just that um, uh, principle of treating the underlying um, disorder rather than trying to treat the, the downstream effects of that Disorder. So from my perspective, the big unanswered questions are, what is really the driver of gut inflammation? And it applies to IBD, which is my field of interest, but actually it applies to many other immune-mediated diseases of which we're seeing a huge increase around the world, be it rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, autoimmune thyroid disease, for example, other autoimmune conditions. A lot of these um, have been linked to alterations in gut microbiome and dysregulated immune system. So I think it applies to many immune-mediated diseases. And really um, trying to mine that uh, knowledge, that community, that natural process to understand where things are going wrong and why we're seeing this increase in disease in our world, uh, and perhaps uh, how we can correct that in a, a way that treats that underlying um, disequilibrium. Have you, have you seen papers where people that have, you know, Crohn's or IBD, um, where they were given antibiotics, like broad spectrum, and did that worsen their condition or improve it or change it? Um, well, with both um, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, there are data out there about the role of antibiotics and that you can uh, improve uh, inflammation by treating with antibiotics. Uh, one of the problems with this um, approach is that antibiotics themselves also have side effects that uh, are not desirable in the long term. And in general, when you stop the antibiotics, disease symptoms recur. So it's not a long-term uh, strategy, unfortunately. Uh, more interest recently, I think, and more excitement has come about altering the microbiota through uh, prebiotics, and prebiotics is a fancy word for the food that we're feeding them, which gets back to one of your first questions. And so there have been uh, some, some nice successes recently on dietary therapy and the role of diet in controlling inflammation. And when we think about this increase in disease um, around the world, particularly in developing countries as they uh, become more westernized, if you will, uh, it, one of the major issues is the industrialization of the food um, supplies in these countries, the use of Emulsifiers, which have been shown to alter gut um, microbiota, including the important mucus layer and lining of the gut, uh, but also highly processed foods. These have all been associated with increasing incidence of immune-mediated diseases. So I think there's a real interest in shaping the microbiota and shaping the immune interactions through diet where we can. 
is there room for another class? You know, we have probiotics, which is the bacteria itself. We have prebiotics, the food. What about metabolites? What if you were to eat certain metabolites in significant amounts? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. One bacteria. What what would that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, a really interesting idea, and there has been some work in this area. in my lab, we're certainly interested in um, looking at these metabolites and seeing if they would work as supplements. Um, there have been some work in other uh, supplements. For example, tryptophan uh, supplementation has been something that's been uh, quite actively studied, quite effective in mice, less effective in humans. Similarly, vitamin D has been studied in the past as well, and supplementation of vitamin D, again, in mice can be quite effective at controlling inflammation. However, in large trials uh, in humans, it's been uh, less successful, unfortunately. So even though we've cured inflammatory bowel disease in mice many times over, it still remains a bit elusive in, uh, in patients, uh, but we keep on looking for that right metabolite or maybe the right uh, combination of metabolites that we could um, uh, treat using a supplement approach. Yeah, I guess you could also have, you know, precursors to other compounds. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways to, is anyone considering, you know, let's say you have IBD, I mean, I, I guess all the technologies are there in separate pieces, but why not have a little bit of a, a preferential phage that preys upon, you know, a certain bacteria that seems to be in too high of a prevalence in the gut, and at the same time, uh, a narrow-spectrum antibiotic, and at the same time, a, mm-hmm. a prebiotic to feed what you want to have there instead, and at the same time, a probiotic as well to bolster that. Why not a little bit of four or five different interventions to try to restore a gut instead of one just sledgehammer or one way yeah. only. Yes, and in fact, I think that that approach is uh, is very attractive. Uh, sometimes it's called a personalized medicine approach or a precision uh, medicine approach, and that's because each individual is slightly different. We don't think there's one size fits all, as your question implies, and that would involve sort of profiling a patient uh, beforehand, before you decide design the treatment, if you will, and looking to see where those deficiencies are and then designing a custom treatment for that particular patient's um, a combination of microbiome deficiencies or abundant overabundances, their metabolic profile, uh, and potentially also uh, their uh, dietary deficiencies, and kind of coming together with a, a precision-based approach. Now, that is not a when you when you move away from one size uh, fits all, it becomes a lot more complicated, obviously, and also uh, difficult using existing models of care. Uh, which isn't to say it shouldn't be done. It just means that we have to rethink the way that we're approaching this problem somewhat in order to design a a solution that works best for individual patients. Yeah, because it's such a, a community and there's such interdependency and everything depends on everything else, it seems. It, it just doesn't seem like adding one thing, you know, supplementing with vitamin D or having this one drug or this one thing is really going to, I mean, the system is either going to kick it away and say, you know, it, it maintains its, its current stasis or it'll alter the system. But it just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like a, it seems antithetical to have the way, the way our, our gut works and our microbiome works. I know it calls for a much more difficult approach, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. No, I think that it's, uh, it's a very aspirational uh, goal and one, something that we should be aspiring to. And in general, I think in medicine as a whole is appreciating individual variability in our patient populations, that not everyone's the same. And that, as you say, just using uh, one drug is, or one approach is probably not... Uh, going to lead to the best results, but rather a multimodal approach where you target the various aspects that we understand through all of our associative studies and mechanistic studies, targeting those individual um, or targeting the whole uh, group of disturbances that we see in these patients rather than just individual parts, either the T cells seem to be active or the microbiome or the 
gut lining or whatever it is, we, we target all of it together. I think that would be probably much more successful. And maybe someday we will be able to cure this disease rather than manage it, which is what we do currently. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not going to, certainly not even going to get close to solving it by thinking. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking about all this. Has anyone tried to develop a gut organoid where you can approximate a, you know, like a little, little gut and feed it things and uh-huh. see what it does? So, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, in, in our lab, we do this in many other labs around the, uh, the world is we do use these organoids or mini guts. And what these are derived from is when you do a colonoscopy and take a biopsy, you can take that biopsy back to the lab. And then with the right um, factors uh, in a 3D gel, you can have these little uh, organoids or spheroids that grow. And they have many of the aspects of um, the gut epithelium, at least. Uh, The gut itself is made up not just of the epithelial cell lining, that's the outermost cell lining, which itself has five different, uh, at least five different cell types in it, but also the supporting stroma and then the immune system that comes in. So when you try to um, mimic that whole system, the immune system, the supporting tissue and the epithelium, it gets complicated. Uh, There have been some attempts at doing it. They have things that are called so-called gut on a chip where they have at least the immune system and the epithelial cell compartments, um, and sometimes some stromal compartments. Um, But of course, when you're doing it in a chip, it's very regulated and it doesn't quite capture all the complexity, but it's getting closer. And in these gut on a chip approaches or organoid approaches, we can test uh, individual perturbations and combinations. And in our own lab, when we've looked at the differences and responses of organoids derived from different patients, we see inter-individual differences in their response to treatments that we use in the lab. And so one day I would love to uh, have the situation where we could have a patient, we grow their organoids uh, in the lab, we then test that organoid on a variety of uh, metabolites, on a variety of bacteria that we have in our collection. We find what uh, that patient's uh, organoids respond best to in the lab. And then we concoct a combination of factors that seem to be best suited for their genetic background, for their immune phenotype uh, that might work best for them. I would love to see that uh, reach maturity and, and become a standard of care. That'd be fabulous. And then in, uh, just a couple more questions. In terms of immunity, do you see that the, a properly functioning gut, could you consider it a first line of defense and our immune system a second line? Or does that not make sense? Is there not one before the other? It's either both or the absence of both. Any sense mm-hmm. of that? It- Absolutely. So um, when we think about the first line of defense in our bodies and in terms of the immune system, we often think of the innate immune system and the innate immune system encompasses the uh, barrier function, for example, of our skin, of our lung lining or of our gut. Uh, these are all the first line therapies. So even those epithelial cells, the outermost lining of cells of the gut or the lung or the skin are making uh, antimicrobial peptides. So these are uh, proteins that the gut is making that target specifically, uh, seem to target pathogenic bacteria. The gut also makes a very protective mucus lining that's very important for homeostasis to have this nice mucus lining. And so that is the first line of defense. It's only once um, uh, bacteria get through this outer lining of defense uh, that they get exposed to the adaptive immune system, the B cells and the T cells that make up our adaptive immune system, as well as a variety of other cells. Uh, so yes, it's very, it's very reasonable to think about it as a two-stage uh, process. But those two um, aspects of the immune system are in constant communication with each other. So the innate immune system, the epithelial cells, et cetera, can signal back to the adaptive immune system to mount a, a vigorous response, and vice versa. The adaptive immune system can also influence the tone of the innate immune system. Hmm. Well, what, what do you think is going to be possible you know, from your research and in general in the next couple, in the near term, next year to any breakthroughs mm-hmm. that you're nearing or? Uh... Mm-hmm. We have a few um, metabolites in the lab that we've 
pulled through the process all the way down to structural characterization and synthesis. And we think that some of these we might be able to develop into um, therapeutics. Uh, that's probably over the next few years, I hope. Um, over the next, in the, in the shorter term, I'm hoping to understand uh, and better characterize uh, a handful of species that we've been focusing on, a few dozen in fact, uh, and start looking at the abundance of these and the abundance of the metabolites they're making in patient cohorts and healthy controls to see if there are differences, at least to point us in the right direction for the approach that we were talking about before about metabolite um, augmentation, be that either through prebiotics or the metabolite directly. Uh, and just by identifying these, hopefully we'll find some that are uh, generally regarded as safe grass uh, molecules that could be taken in the form of supplements uh, or uh, even perhaps a combination of strains that would be uh, a super probiotic, if you will. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Jacob, what's the best way for people to find out more about, uh, about your work and, and what you do? Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you. You can certainly uh, find me on the Modern Research uh, Institute's uh, webpage and you can see information about the lab and uh, about what we do. Um, and I encourage you to come and then have a look. Okay. Well, very good, Jake. Thanks for coming. I, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's been a great conversation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.